the bit of the Bible that we've just read, (laughs) for lots of people, is one of the, well, actually, right the way through uh, the book of Judges, we have this repeated set of pictures which are a huge challenge to people. The idea that we see a God which is, who's involved in the, uh, in the whole issues of, uh, of people being slaughtered and all of that kind of thing. And we get so wound up with it and so uncomfortable with it. Can I just, uh, can, I just can we loosen our belts just a little bit? Uh, because we, we need to enter into a little bit of the way the Bible is being written here. Uh, We have the idea, we know, don't we, what black comedy is like. We know what black comedy is, that sort of dark. It was coined in the 1930s in France, uh, 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 a philosophical thinker who came up with the idea of humor noir, the idea of black comedy, the idea of getting a very strong message across through the use of dark humor. Here's an example. What apparently, I don't think there's anybody from Russia here, but apparently it's one of the greatest, most powerful ideas used so often in Russian humor. And yet at the same time, it's getting there. Let me tell you a joke. You might not laugh. Nurse, where are we going? To the morgue. No one's laughed yet. Uh, But I haven't died yet. The doctor said to the morgue, to the morgue it is. But what's wrong with me? The autopsy will show. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't work over here really, does it? But in Russia, people would be really laughing. Now the interesting thing is, where was that joke actually written? Well, it was written in one of the gulags, the Russian concentration camps. The idea that there were those who were uh, literally being selected out and taken for experimentation and all of that kind of thing. The fact that death was so imminent and yet at the same time people were entering into this dark humour. This kind of humour which at the same time was getting over a powerful message. A message that this is not right. This isn't the way people should live. This isn't the way people should be treated. And the way that we get the message over is by some sort of satirical humour. A very dark sort of humour. Uh, and we, we see it again, any of you by the likes of Private Eye, it's, it's just there all the time. This same kind of idea, getting a big message across. Now do you think that maybe on occasions... Uh, God might use the similar kind of technique, similar kind of idea. Well, actually, the way this is written is, is just like that. If we were not so kind of, uh, so uncomfortable in our 21st century thinking, if we were um, the Israelite people of, of centuries ago, sat around the campfire listening to this being read, this story being recounted, we might find it just a little bit lighter than we find it right now. Because that's the way it is written in many ways. We have uh, this sort of extreme picture where, where the joke is on the oppressors. Let's see how it works out. Let's see how that works out. The first thing to say 
is that one of the, I would guess that one of the reasons we feel uncomfortable with that is we think, well, surely, surely God is, is supreme and therefore the idea that uh, he might use that is, is uncomfortable and, and God's far more serious than that. God's far more serious than that. He wouldn't, he wouldn't enter into that kind of thing. Not Psalm, say, Psalm 2. How does God deal with those who are opposing him? How does God deal with those who are opposing him? When nations rise up, Psalm 2 says, when nations conspire and the leaders of those nations plot in vain against me, when the kings of the earth rise up, rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed or his people, saying this, let us break their chains and show off, uh, throw off their shackles. When, when people are rising up against God, what's God's response? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. That's a, that is a huge thing to say, isn't it? God laughs. Why, why does God laugh? Why does he find it amusing? There was um, that occasion, of, I think, what a, anybody watched the rugby final yesterday? Uh, Rob Burrow, what a brilliant, brilliant try. Absolutely fantastic try. He was, he was playing, I think it was last season, I'm fairly sure it was Rob Burrow because he's five foot five. And uh, he, was de he decided to have a go at the, one of the opposition. And um, he, was, he, he was kind of swinging punches and all the rest of it, five foot five. This guy's about six foot seven, and, and uh, that's across the shoulders. Uh, and and he, this guy just had his hand on the top of Rob Burrow's head, and he was holding him back. And he was like this. He was kind of trying to punch him and, and hit him and all the rest of it. And it was, it was a joke. It was a joke because he just didn't stand a chance. He just didn't stand a chance. He might be a brilliant player with the ball, but in a scrap against a six-foot-seven bloke, he's, he's got no hope. And that's the point, isn't it? It was funny because he stood no chance. And don't you think that that is how God sees the opposition of this world? And we might be sit sitting here thinking, isn't God way more serious than that? But when the gap is that huge, it becomes a joke. And maybe, just maybe you're in a situation right at this point in time, when you feel so, in, not maybe you might not be showing it, but you are so determined deep down inside that you are going to oppose God that you're going to stand against everything that he's demanding of you, and you know he's demanding things of you, you know that he's trying to speak to you, you know that he's engaging with you, and you are just standing there and you're going to say, oh, no way. You realize that the gap between you and God is just so great that it's a laugh if you try to stand against it. And that's what this message is about. That's what this, at least partly, what this is about. So let's see how this works out in this story as we work through uh, this chapter. The first thing that we see is that uh, Samson, let's recap a little bit. Samson and, uh, has gone down, he's married this Philistine woman, and um, there's been all sorts of a kerfuffle at the wedding uh, banquet or the feast beforehand because he's set a riddle. And uh, his wife has been uh, persuaded 
by, his, by the companions that have been given to Samson to, to let go with the, uh, with the answer to the riddle. Samson just goes off in a huff and uh, he's really angry and we see now that he returns. Later on, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson, <laughs> Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. <laughs> that, guys, don't take a young goat uh, as a, a kind of peace offering. It might have worked then, it doesn't work now. But he turns up at the door with this young goat. And um, there's a crisis. Because what's happened in the intervening time is that uh, Samson's father-in-law has passed his daughter on now and given her in marriage to the companion who who she had been in collaboration with Uh, to answer Samson's riddle. And Samson is absolutely incensed. His response is, is, this is the opportunity, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. Do you remember way back where we first saw this? This story unfolding, where we saw the story unfolding and and Samson, we see, who is a a man who is set aside as one of God's people. That's what he is. He's set aside as one of God's people. And he goes down and he's decided that he's going to marry one of of God's enemies, a Philistine woman. He is the one who's been identified to be a releaser, uh, a saviour of God's people and uh, from the Philistines and he decides he's going to marry one of the Philistines. That is a crisis uh, in, in what's going on in the storyline. But we read in the previous chapter that this is what God was doing to set up the challenge to the Philistines. It's so important that we remember that. Uh, we see Samson, who is living out his life in stubborn independence. That kind of, that's on one level. Samson is stubbornly deciding, I'm going to marry a Philistine. Uh, and I'm not going to continue in that calling to be a saviour. I'm going to become a part of it. But at the same time, there, there is something else going on, which is Samson has been determined by God to be a saviour. And God is going to carry out his plan. And now we see the very fact that Samson goes down again. What God has said, he is using this as a point of crisis, a point of opposition. So here we have uh, a goat that comes uh, instead of flowers. uh, And the end result is that there is opposition to Samson. How does he respond? He is the original fire starter. He goes out and he captures, we, we kind of get the picture, don't we? That he goes from this place and he, he catches, it sounds like as we read it, in the space of a, a few hours, 300 foxes. And he ties their tails together and lights a torch and ties it between the tails. And we don't know why, other than it seems to me, if you tie two foxes together, the very nature is that they're going to try and run in opposite directions. They're going to be running all over the place and just spreading this fire everywhere they go. But if we read it carefully, what we see is that he burned up the shocks and standing corn together with the vineyards and 
the olive groves. We read that in verse 5. We see that what happens is that he goes out. It would seem to me that he goes out on a mission of collecting, and he's using the same technique, and he runs rampage through the land. He creates economic disaster for the Philistines. The, 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 the crop is destroyed in huge amounts. The vineyards are destroyed in huge amounts. The olive groves are destroyed in huge amounts. Now, for him to have, to, to have attacked all of those olive groves, all of those standing corn, all of the shocks, all of the vineyards, they would have been in many different places. So what he's done is he's gone out and he's, he's had the same technique catch a couple of foxes, tie the tails together, light a a torch, and then just send them out. And at the same time, what we see is what he does is quite remarkable. You know, you try catching a fox, but he catches 300. And he ties 300 tails together. Uh, And it would seem, therefore, that he's setting fire to at least... 300 fields, vineyards, and olive groves, at least. All around the the whole of the Philistine land now, there is fire spreading. And that's the very point, that he does something extraordinary. Uh, And the Philistines are, if you like, they are responsible for it, because they've given his wife away. Uh, And that's, if you get black comedy... That's the joke. It's at the expense of the Philistines. And so the response, therefore, is, how do we deal with that? As Philistines, we're angry. What's gone on, the Philistines ask in verse 6. Who did this? And they were told, Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. It's him, Samson. And the reason is because... His wife was given to his companion. They know what's gone on. Uh, Straight away we see there, don't we, that the Philistines know, really, that what has happened is not right. Initially, when we first see it and we get the story, we say, well, it's quite reasonable, isn't it? Samson's gone off in a huff. Surely it's quite reasonable that his daughter has been given to somebody else. But the Philistines know that it's not right. They say he's been given to his companion. And here's joke number two. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Doesn't sound very funny. And it wasn't for them. But that is precisely what they were threatened with if they didn't find out the riddle. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? In other words, God is saying all of this that is going on, it seems like just unconnected events and and Samson's this has happened and that's happened and he's become uh, and all the time it is God is making this this pun again and again and again you said that you were going to do that you found out the riddle you thought that you were safe from that well guess what it's going to happen anyway it's going to happen anyway because actually you're opposed to me It's not Samson that you're opposed to, although you think you are. The reality is that you are opposed to me. And it is a fearful thing to stand in the face of God. It is a terrifying thing for us to stand in the face of God. We cannot do it. 
Our opposition is so small and so puny that even when we think we've got no hope, or, or rather even when the Philistines think that there is no hope for those who oppose Samson, he's just helpless, it ends up that somehow it works its way through. So, the, the next escalation. This story is all about just escalating, escalating, escalating. The result of Samson's wife and father-in-law being killed is even more slaughter for the Philistines. What we see is that he attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them and then he went down and stayed in the cave in the rock of Etam. He just... It's as though no matter what they do, no matter what they do, every step that they take, it seems as though it gets worse. Why is that? Because they're opposing God. They're opposing God. And there are many people who I've spoken to down through the years, and they have expressed to me time and time again that in that process of coming to faith, it wasn't as though there was necessarily disasters. It wasn't as though there was necessary, although for some they were going through tough times. But they went from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And it was as though time and time and time and time again in situations or in conversations or in experiences, they knew that they were confronting God again and again and again. Are you in that situation? Are you in that situation where you know that there is something behind this? That's how we should be reading this chapter. We're able to read this chapter because we've got the whole story, aren't we? We know what's going on behind the scenes. That's the very point. We can look back and we can see that God is working to deliver his people. A people who think it is perfectly acceptable to burn to death a wife and a father-in-law. That's what the Philistines are like. That's what God is opposed to. Their violence, their inhumanity, their ungodliness. God is saying, I will stand against that. And they express it and he says, no matter what you do, I will oppose you. Let's not, let's not get to a point where we feel so sorry for those who are violently opposed to God. Sin is a, sin is a dangerous business. Opposing God is a deadly game. It's serious. And that's what this chapter is all about. Yes, it's got elements of humor in it in the way that it's telling the story. But underneath it is, is, it is a deadly game to stand against God. So, a little interlude now. Because what happens is that he goes down to this rock of Etam hides himself in a cave and the Philistines went up and camped in Judah spreading out around them and they, 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 the, the people say the people of Judah say why have you come to fight us? Why have you come to fight us? Well because of what Samson's done. Look at the state of where God's people are. They go down to Samson and they go and speak to him and they say Listen to this. This is God's people. They say, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? That is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. They have become so immersed 
in what's going on around them. They've become so accepting of the situation. They've become so, well, this is where we are, that they have forgot that it is God who is ruling over them. He is. In fact, he's delivering them at this time, and they can't even see it. You know, we said right at the very beginning when we were starting to work through this, uh, this whole chap, this whole section about Samson, let's not live just absorbing the world around us and not being critical and critiquing and being clear that God is the one who is our God. Yes, to engage. But yes, to remember that he is our God. To be distinct. To be a people who are bringing blessing. You know, the, the thing is that the people of God, God's people here should have been a blessing to the nations around. But because they have not stood firm, they become a curse to them. So Samson is now in a situation where God's people have come to him. Uh, and they tie him up. Tie him up with some ropes. And uh, he's being taken away now to be handed over by the Philistines, uh, by God's people to the Philistines. And he just makes, just promise me one thing. Just don't kill me. As the Philistines are approaching, we see that uh, God's spirit, spirit of the Lord, again comes upon him. Verse uh, 14, we read that as they come along shouting, Uh, This is victory for the Philistines. This is what it's all about. Uh, And then here's comic moment number two, where Samson just snaps the ropes. He just snaps them as if they're burnt flax. the, the, the The ropes that are tied around his wrists just drop off. He picks up a jawbone from a, a donkey that is freshly dead at the side of the road, and he kills a thousand of them. He slays a thousand of them. With a donkey. And then just to add to it, we have this little, which we've managed to capture in the English, this little little song that he sings afterwards. And if we, if we can just begin to get a little bit of the humour, he says, with a donkey's jawbone, I've made donkeys of them. <laughs> you know? It is funny. I, I made donkeys of them. You know, they try to stand against, but it just is impossible. In human terms, it's impossible. And that's the very point. Here he is, one man with a jawbone of a donkey in his hand, and he kills a thousand of them. Now, just let's add up all of this. We've got one man who's there to deliver God's people from oppressors, violent, ungodly oppressors. And he doesn't even live the way he ought to live. He goes and tries to marry one of them. But God is using that to create a point of confrontation, which will result, this has now escalated, from one challenge in a, in a wedding ceremony because Samson has decided to marry a Philistine woman from one tiny, tiny little event, there is now economic disaster for the Philistines. There is national crisis for the Philistines. There are a thousand dead men 
for the Philistines because Samson has had a riddle exposed by an unfaithful wife. Why? Because God is at work. Samson, he's at a place now, well he actually calls it in verse 17, he calls the place Ramath-Lehi, translated Jawbone Hill. That's what it means. He calls it Jawbone Hill, just to kind of add to the whole humour of what's going on in this chapter. Isn't there something that interesting now? He goes on and he gets thirsty. He cries to the Lord, you've given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God graciously gives him some water. You know, one of the things that's striking as we see this, the people need a saviour. They desperately need a saviour. They are oppressed by the Philistines. They are so terrified by the Philistines that they are willing to hand their champion over to him because they are so fearful of them. They'll hand him over rather than suffer more oppression. And what we see here is that the saviour himself is drawing all of the attention to himself. Look what I've done. I've killed a thousand with a donkey's jawbone. If we read the songs in other parts of the Old Testament, what we see is that God is glorified. What we see in Samson's little song is that he's glorified. What we see in his little prayer, where he's desperately thirsty, is basically, God, look what you've done. I'm your saviour. Are you going to let me die now? It's all about me. It's all about me. Look at what happens next. We, we haven't, I don't think we've got it on the screen because I, I forgot to mention that we wanted to cover the next few verses. The next bit of the story is that Samson then goes down to Gaza, again outside of God's people, and he goes and he spends the night with a prostitute. This is God's saviour in place for his people. Does that sound like a saviour? Going and spending the night with a prostitute? That's what he does. And they hear that he's there. This is the moment we've got him. He's lying in bed. He's going to be there until the morning. They surround the place, ready to get him. And uh, they... In the night, middle of the night, he gets up, he tears the gates off the city and carries them to the top of the hill. Now, when I was young, I had one of these Bible storybooks. Fantastic for getting, uh, getting the idea of the whole story of the Bible and, you know, some comic strip and all of that kind of thing, telling the stories, getting my mind into the biblical characters. But it had this picture at the end of this little bit of the story where it had Samson leaning against a pair of gates... <laughs> Uh, looking out over the city that he's just torn the gates off. That is just way short of the mark. Because when we get the geography of what he's done, he rips the gates off and carries them 40 miles to the top of the hill near Hebron. That's how far he carries these gates. Now look at the symbolism that is going on. 
The security is ripped apart from the safety of Gaza and is carried, the security is carried into a holy place in God's place where God's people are. The security for Gaza is gone. And he's carried them in a superhuman way, in in an extraordinary way, as if to say this isn't by human strength, this is by the strength of God. These gates are now 40 miles away on the top of a hill. And again, another joke for the, for the Philistines or for the people of Gaza. A little punchline to say, do you think you can, you think a set of gates are going to do it? I'll carry them 40 miles. But look at what Samson is. A saviour who really uses, up to this point, everybody. For his own benefit. He looks at a Philistine woman and he determines, tells his parents, just give me them, give me her, get me her. He tells, or he, he, he finds out that his wife has told the story and he just goes off in a huff and spends time away from her. You've upset me. I'm not going to. I'm not going to work this out. I'm not going to sort it out. I'm just going to go and do my own thing. Then he brings a goat because now he wants to go and spend the night with her. And then when that doesn't work out, he then delivers vengeance against the Philistines. And then he goes and spends the night with a prostitute. And yet at the same time, he is all the time becoming the savior of God's people. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that amazing that that is what is happening? There's these two stories going on all the time. There's a great bigger picture. God is saving his people and there's the tragedy of this man called Samson who is living a life which is not consistent with what his calling is. He just abuses people. You know, many, many people have used this and they've, say, they've said, well, that, that's kind of, that becomes normative. That's the way it should be in terms of relationships between men and women because that's, how, after all, that's how what, one of God's great leaders did it. No. Absolutely not. The tragedy is that he is a saviour who is using those who he is saving and everybody around him for his own intent. And that is what power does in this world, doesn't it? Ultimately, those who are looking to put themselves in a position of of power and authority, they are drawing from everybody else around them. Everybody who brings hope ultimately turns it in on themselves. Samson is using every occasion for himself. But he is still a saviour. Doesn't that, doesn't that just beg the question? What kind of saviour do we really need? Why is Jesus a saviour and better than Samson? Doesn't it ask that question? It's the most simple question to come out of this story. Because Samson is a saviour, but he's not that good in so many ways. So just the simple, one simple question.
question in the storyline of the Bible, why is Jesus better? Why do we stand here week in, week out, and every story that we look at, we find our way to Jesus? Why do we continually, consistently come back to that and say, but Jesus is a saviour, why is he better? Why is this aspect of Jesus more superior to everything that has gone before? Because that's what the storyline of the Bible is telling us. We need a saviour, but all of the ones who've gone before are not good enough. There are many reasons, but I'm going to just draw out this one this afternoon. Just this one. Jesus as Saviour never draws anything to himself to raise him up above you and me to our detriment. That's what's happening, isn't it, with Samson. Whenever he draws, whenever he becomes a saviour, he draws satisfaction to himself. He becomes renowned. He becomes well-known. He becomes a cult figure. You know, all of that kind of thing. He becomes somebody who is superior and he uses people. But Jesus never does that. In fact, what we see in the life of Jesus is A tremendous parallel to Samson in many ways. What's happening? There's points of contention. There's points of crisis. What's going on in this chapter is the whole situation is escalating and escalating. It's getting worse and worse. And that's exactly what happens in the life of Jesus. He stands opposed to the religious elite. He stands opposed to the political elite. And again and again he creates points where crisis emerges. He doesn't step back and say, I'd better not say that just in case it causes a rumpus and they get offended. He actually stands in their face and he says, and this is how it is. You are like snakes. You religious leaders. You are the kind of people who just put weights on people's shoulders and you don't give them any help or any hope or any encouragement. You're just hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. <laughs> it's a bit, that's what Jesus speaks. That's the way Jesus speaks. He confronts it head on because he knows he's on a journey. But where does his journey end? His journey doesn't end where he becomes the superior one in human terms. His journey ends where he becomes the ultimate exploited one. Isn't that amazing? Every other hero exploits others. But Jesus becomes the one who is exploited. And then there is various points where the gospel is described as something, a sense of mystery, a sense of awe. Let me give you this, just this one little insight. The very point where Jesus looks the most exploited is the very point where he is the most exalted. The point where he looks at his worst 
is the point where he is at his best. The point where he looks crushed and defeated, he is triumphing. The point where he seems to lose, he wins. Unlike any other saviour throughout the story of God's people. You might be feeling, I'm not sure whether I can trust this Jesus. The one promise that we can draw out of this is quite simply this. Jesus will never exploit you. Never. He becomes the exploited one. So that he can draw to the him those who are broken and exploited and destroyed. He can draw them to him. He can draw us to him. And we become exalted through him. He is the ultimate saviour. In fact, one of the techniques, do you get the little technique that the Bible is using here? How does, how does this draw us to Jesus? By telling us how bad others are. You know, it's kind of like, let's draw a contrast. If we, let's paint this picture because it then describes how much better Jesus is. You know, this is the thumbnail sketch where Jesus is the oil painting masterpiece. This is the, the temporary kind of idea, the prototype, which becomes supremely seen in one person alone. And if you're sat here thinking, I'm not sure that I can trust this Jesus. Because he might just be like Samson. He might just exploit me. The reality is, he says, I never, never will. You can trust me, is what he says. The way that's worked out is by amazing grace. 